I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. My name is Jiaying Zhao, but call me Jay-Z. I'm a professor of psychology and sustainability at the University of British Columbia. And where are we going right now? We're heading toward the CBC fridge. (laughs) Checking out the staff fridge in an office lunchroom is not for the faint of heart, but our producer in Vancouver, Anne Penman, led Jay-Z right to it. Ah, there it is. We're going to get her to feng shui our fridge. Oh, wow. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Would you like me to open the fridge? Yes, please. Okay, here we go. Oh, this is brutal. Brutal. A blunt assessment. Oh, boy. Shall we start feng shui? Now, I'm guessing your fridge at home is a step up from this office fridge. Apologies to our colleagues in Vancouver for outing them. Uh, Chances are, though, you still occasionally find a brittle half lemon wedged behind the crisper, a bunch of wilted lettuce, moldy container of you can't even tell what it was. So, yes, it is a good idea to feng shui the fridge. This is just everybody's lunch, right? Uh, (laughs) Okay, so I can start there. Okay. So starting this fridge, I would um, move the perishables to the door, at least at the level of our hands, as much as possible. I see in the back there's yogurt uh, that need to come out to the front. Uh, there's vegetables and a little bit of cucumber and maybe fruits in the back. They need to be moved forward. Uh, there's an apple in the drawer. Not a good idea. I will move the apple out to the front of the fridge at eye level or hand level. There's some yogurt, apple, right? Uh, this, I don't know what that is, cheese thing. Uh, I will put that on the, on the top level here. So when we open the fridge, we can easily grab them. I would not keep them on the bottom level where it's actually hard to reach and easy to forget. So step one of the feng shui, perishables visible at easy reach and put some in the door. Now you can see that all the containers are at the door, which is the mistake. So like the Coke, Dr. Pepper, the seasoning can stay in the back. That should be in the drawers or in the back of the fridge because they last longer. So if we forget them, they still last. But the milk can stay at the door because they need to be, they're perishables, they need to be consumed earlier before it goes bad. Okay, that's how I will feng shui the fridge. Seems straightforward, doesn't it? Jiaying Zhao's TED Talk, How to Feng Shui Your Fridge and Other Happy Climate Hacks, is listed by the TED Institute as one of the top 10 talks for a better you. Given that it is the beginning of a new year, we thought um, as people are thinking about how to be better versions of themselves, we would talk about the fridge and more. Jay-Z joins us from Vancouver. Good morning. Good morning. I'm sorry that you had to go through that office fridge. It sounded kind of nasty. <laughs> it was fun. What does that mean to feng shui the fridge? It means to reduce food waste. 
at our homes and our workplace. It means reorganizing the fridge so that we don't forget things and let them rot in the fridge. You could say just reorganizing them. I mean, why apply the feng shui kind of label to it? Well, I think the problem is, you know, food waste contributes to not just waste, but also carbon emission. It actually accounts for half of food-related emissions globally. So there's a lot we can do as individuals to cut back or reduce or cut out food waste altogether. So we heard what you were doing there, but if I'm standing in front of my refrigerator, walk us through this. How do you go about this? Part of this, as I said, we heard about this, is is taking the apples, for example, out of the drawer and putting them uh, along with the vegetables in the door. Why why are you doing that? Well, because we're taught to organize our fridge in, in, in actually an incorrect way. Um, we're taught to keep the perishables in the drawers and put the containers at the door. That traditional wisdom, unfortunately, no longer works. Actually, it has never worked because we tend to see things and grab things from the fridge. We tend to forget things that we don't see. So out of sight, out of mind. Mm. Um, the perishables that are kept safely in the drawers are the ones we forget most often. Likewise, stuff kept you know, that's in the back of the fridge is not seen and therefore forgotten. So what I propose here is do the opposite. Um, put the perishables to the door or to the front of the fridge and move the, the durables into the drawers. And that way, whenever we open the fridge, we see the perishables right away. And that's a visual reminder that we need to use them or eat them quickly before they go bad. So I take the seven jars of hot sauce that I now have in the door of my fridge. I put them in the drawer where yes. the collards would be and the At kale the and the other greens. And I put those in the door. That's that's exactly right. And they'll stay as fresh as, as they would in the... I mean, the point of is the crisper drawers, I thought, was to keep those vegetables crisp as well. That's the point. But we forget them and yeah. they no longer remain fresh and they have to go to garbage instead. But... Keeping veggies at the door, I mean, I hear you. <laughs> um, the common criticism I get is, well, they will wilt at the door. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out, yeah, they go a little soft, but we actually eat veggies quickly within a couple of days of purchase. So they actually don't go that you know, soft or they, they don't wilt that much. Uh, that's been my experience uh, since I you know, fun trade my fridge a couple of years ago. And I actually have never wasted a piece of produce since then. I was going to say, what difference, aside from it looking really, when you because of the images of the fridge open with leafy greens kind of spilling out of the drawer, it looks beautiful in some ways. But what <laughs> difference have, have you seen in terms of your vegetable <laughs> consumption when the vegetables are there in front of your eyes? Oh, I, the, my veggie consumption has gone up because, you know, every time I purchase veggies, I eat them right away because I see them every time I open the fridge and I can see how bad or how, what state they're in, right? If, if this carrot is getting a little soft, I will eat them right away. If the scale is going a little like wilty or doesn't look that good, I will eat them right away. So actually I increased my veggie consumption because of this feng shui. You can do this one time, but is it easy to stick with those habits? Again, we are hardwired, it seems, to put the vegetables in the uh, in the drawers and all of the, the condiments and ketchup and mustard and what have you in, in the door. I think once you make this one-time change, uh, we tend to stick with 
the last thing we did. So we have this called inertia, right? So as I consume the vegetables at the door, now the door becomes empty. So whenever, when, when I purchase new vegetables, I put them at the door right away. That's, that's the beauty of inertia. This was in part spurred by, as you said, an attempt to try and reduce food waste. We've talked a lot about food waste on this program um, and the environmental cost that it can have in landfills as it gurgles and burbles away. From your perspective, when did you start to think that this was an issue that, that you as an individual could use to address your climate footprint? This, um, I think about four or five years ago, um, when Liz Dunn and I came up with a happy climate approach. So we went through actions that will significantly decrease greenhouse gas emissions while increase happiness at the same time. So food waste turns out to be one of those actions that are in the sweet spot of reducing emissions and increasing happiness. And we think that, oh, food waste at home means, you know, a lot, a lot of that is comes from the fridge. Mm-hmm. Um, so then that's when I reorganized or re-examined my fridge and realized there's actually a lot of waste that comes from the drawers and the back of the fridge. And the door, I, I barely touch stuff at the door. They are just kind of wasted space, in my opinion. So um, that's how I came up with this uh, feng shui technique. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. In your TED Talk, you talk a lot about, about that idea of happiness and happy as we go about addressing a climate crisis. Th- that's not a word that is often applied to climate action. Um, why, why did you want to focus on happiness and happy climate hacks? Well, the reason is, as you said exactly, climate change has never been associated with happiness. Instead, it's always doom and gloom. There's a climate anxiety, depression, despair, hopelessness. And I think happiness is one of the positive emotions uh, that can actually stir people into action. It can sustain behavior change. Um, It can actually get more people on board on climate change because everybody cares about happiness. So this is what, this is why we came up with this approach where we think happiness is actually a critical ingredient in the climate fight. What are some other ways that you can find happiness in, as you say, the climate fight? Oh yeah, there's there's a lot. So beyond food waste, we can think about how we eat. So what we eat. So it turns out that, you know, eating more plants and less meat is a happy climate action. And this is not to say don't eat meat, right? This is not to uh, deprive people of meat, but rather eating more plants is great for the climate, because it has lower emissions, it improves human health, physical health, and mental health. It actually directly causes people to feel uh, happier when you eat more vegetables and plants. So that, I think that's, a, that's beautiful. Eating more plants, that's a beautiful, happy climate action. This is part of what you study in, in terms of behavioral sustainability. You're the Canada Research Chair in Behavioral Sustainability. Can you explain what that means? Behavioral sustainability is a term uh, 
recently invented to describe the behavioral approaches we can take to address sustainability challenges. So behavioral approaches involve individual behavior change as well as system-level behavior change. So this is how governments, businesses, stakeholders can change their behaviors as well. Where did this research come from? It came from my lab. <laughs> I think uh, when I started my job at UBC almost 11 years ago, I, I founded the Behavioral Sustainability Lab. So this, this is the first time I, I think I became aware of this term. Why do we need something like this now in terms of thinking about how we can act? Because people are called upon to act in the face of a climate crisis. And there's a lot of things that people are told they need to do. Um, whether it's, as you said, eat less meat, perhaps travel less by airplane, think about how you're getting around in the town or the city that you live in, how you heat your home, what have you. There are a number of things that people are told to do. Um, when you think about behavioral sustainability, how, how does that dovetail with those requests or demands for action? I think people want to take actions. They're actually, I mean, they, the vast majority of Canadians want to do something about climate change. They just don't know what to do, what changes they need to make in their lives. Um, so there's a knowledge gap there. And so well, what I've been doing is actually to communicate the, the most effective actions that will make a difference in climate change and is also in our well-being. So that's, I think this is the, the knowledge gap that I'm trying to fill here. How is that different than the personal sacrifice that we're often told will uh -oh. be required when it comes to addressing climate that's change? That's the worst framing ever. I mean, very few people are willing to sacrifice their own life quality for the sake of others or the planet. That's, that's hard to do. I may be able to sacrifice one or two things, but that's it. There's limit to that. Instead, I think we should focus on the, you know, the non-limited resource, which is well-being, happiness. So why don't we do more things that are better for ourselves, for the planet, and for the climate? I think that's just a more productive approach to take. And can you do that without, can you, can you take that happy approach without having to, to make personal sacrifice? Because people, again, will say, you need to do certain things. It would be a sacrifice to some people to not eat as much meat as they want to eat, to, to right, not travel as much as they want to travel. That's a great example. So instead of saying, eat less meat, or even, you know, don't eat meat at all, my argument is make meat a treat, right? So that's that's like increasing your happiness because now you get to enjoy meat more by eating it less often. And that's that's the human condition here. We, we appreciate things that we that we don't have as often as possible. Um, same with travel. Instead of, you know, flying a lot, let's cut back on flights or bundle of flights. So we, we, we make that into a treat. So that's a kind of a happiness principle uh, to reduce carbon emissions. How are you able to measure whether or not those individual personal actions, big or small as they might be, can actually make a person happy? Well, a lot of things make us happy, right? So when I ask people, what makes you happy? I get a lot of answers like spending time with friends and family, doing what I enjoy, having some personal time. Uh, so these speak to kind of our our knowledge of, you know, what makes us makes ourselves happy. We know that, but we we don't link that to climate change. That connection has never been drawn before. So what I'm saying here is take commute. Commuting is one of the worst things for happiness. 
So instead of commuting every day, can we, you know, let's say work from home or virtual conferencing or, you know, cut back on the time we spend on commuting, that will increase time affluence. So the sense of that we have enough time to do what we want to do, and that will increase our happiness and cutting back on the emissions from commuting. What does it tell you that, as I said, the TED Institute says that, that, that this is one of the top 10 talks for a better you, that people seem to be looking for something like this. What does this tell you? It tells the world that people want to be better in 2024. Um, it's a new year. And I think my talk gives people an idea of how to do that, how to cut back on emissions while be happier. And that's a better you. Is it truly possible to make a difference on an individual level, do you think, when systemically we are burning fossil fuels in record amounts, when there are temperature rises, when there are very direct impacts of climate change that people are seeing, and, and those are happening on a much larger level than someone, whether they eat meat or not, or whether they put the vegetables in, in, in the, fr the front of the refrigerator. How do we know that we're, as an individual, we're able to actually make a difference? Right. So um, individual action matters. Um, it matters on many fronts. One is they show to other people that we care. We're taking this action because I care about the planet as well as my own well-being. And that can start a ripple effect. And that's the basis for collective action. And two is, you know, while we need both system change this larger, larger scale institutional change, as well as individual change. We need both, not one or the other. Um, what we consume uh, on a daily basis drives the market, and that sends a signal to businesses to change their practices, products, and services. Also, one happy climate action is to actually join you know, climate organizations, join climate rallies and protests, to start to instigate system change, you know, to voice our concerns with our friends, to governments, to say we demand changes in policies that can actually make, you know, a larger change or a dent in carbon emission reduction. So that's another happy climate action because we're, I'm spending time with friends and, and, and people, you know, volunteer almost like volunteering. That's actually a really great uh, action for happiness. And, and that's, I think, one, something we can do is it, happy climate action doesn't have to stay at, at your house or only at your work, but you can exercise your rights to, to, you know, the civil rights to instigate broader change while feeling happier. Have you found that it's made a real difference in your life? There's a lot of climate anxiety right now where people feel a lot of doom and gloom by, about the state of the world. And I just wonder whether the work that you're doing has, has brought you more happiness. It definitely has. Um, I've done a couple things. I've changed my, you know, a lot of my habits that I've talked about on my TED Talk. Also, um, I've curated my news feed. So I don't just read the doom and gloom mm. news, but I read a lot of happy news, uh, the positive news, the, the winds of climate change. Um, so, you know, like renewable energy uh, adoption, uh, EV adoption, uh, heat pump adoption, policy change in different countries that, that are going to cut emissions a lot. So I, I deliberately expose myself to the positive news from climate 
but also in, inevitably the, the negative, the doom and gloom news as well. But I'm also living through climate change every day. I mean, I'm where Vancouver is buried under 20 centimeters of snow <laughs> today. So that that's part of, you know, because of climate change. And, and I'm accepting that I'm adapting to it. Um, but I think it's so important to not forget our happiness and well-being at the same time. Jai and Zhao, thank you very much for this. Thanks for having me. Jian Zhao is the Canada Research Chair in Behavioral Sustainability at the University of British Columbia and an Associate Professor of Psychology. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.